Hey, let's do this, CNFers. Let's give a shout-out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. If you visit athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount. I don't get any money. Merely celebrating a great product so you can skip the hangover, man. Dry January is over, but, you know, no sense in slipping into bad habits, B.O., you know, should I send another message? Should I give up on the source? But I always say, you know, one more, I'll try once more, once more. And often that, that final time is, is the time where it really unlocks, really. Oh, hey, Sam Everett, it's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. I paid for my first hair and beard cut in uh, 21 years because uh, my beard is lacking and I was like I'm gonna put it in the hands of a professional and see if we can't optimize my face I look like I could be in the SNL video dick in a box William Ralston is here to talk about his atavist story there are some spoilers so head to magazine.atavist.com to read the story titled Mayday the race to find four children who survived a plane crash deep in the Amazon. This story was widely reported but not better told than what William delivers here. William grabs you from the start and buckle up, dude, because it's 11,000 words that breeze by like a like a thread, man. And by that I mean uh, uh, threads. Man, he doesn't let you go. He doesn't let go of you. I also speak with Jonah Ogles, the lead editor of this piece, and get his side of the table, which is always the unique part of these Adivistian podcasts. But a few things first. You know we love kind reviews on Apple Podcasts, and when we get new ones, I love to read them right here. Give you that shout-out. Here's Levi Justin Rogers. Left a nice review in here. He is titled The Most Metal Podcast on Creative Nonfiction. Yes, that is true. The, that, that's me saying that. Here, here's his review. Uh, the best slash most metal podcast for those interested in writing CNF or hearing from some of their favorite CNF authors. I love Brendan's style. I love his rages against the algorithms and authenticity about the writing life. Yeah, I always learn about new and interesting books. Authors while listening, he also has a great newsletter. We'll get back to that in a moment, but thank you, Levi Justin Rogers. That is amazing. I owe you an email. You can also support the show on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash cnfpod. If you want to help keep the lights on at cnfpod HQ uh, instead of the, the candles that uh, that I keep here, yeah, you can you can help out. If you want to have some spare change, if you got some spare change, two, four, ten bucks a month, we'd be grateful for your contribution here. We got a new patron in Stephanie Patterson. Just want to give you a shout out for your generosity. We also lost one. Q Sad Trombone, even Steven. Rage Against the Algorithm, man. Newsletter went out today as of this recording, February 1st. Once again, more people unsubscribed than, sus- than subscribed last month. Just killing it over here. Head to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the mailing list. First of the month, no spam. 
as far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Or maybe you can. The unsubscribes have been brutal this year. Those really hurt. I started the year with 904 on my list, and now there's 888. Lost nearly 10 uh, today. Brutal. The mailing list and the podcast are the only things I care about. And when people unsubscribe, when, when you're not annoying and pestering them every week, and they still reject after all the effort you put into a, a newsletter. Like I said, those hurt the small-time author more than anything. I wonder if people would unsubscribe if they knew just how crushing it is to an author's platform, like how complicit unsubscribers are in making the newsletter creator more unattractive to agents and publishers. You know, there, there are some authors' lists that, uh, that I'm on that I don't really read, uh, some that I was annoying just put on without my permission, but, you know, that's a screed for another day. Um, but I won't unsubscribe because I know how important that subscriber number is. Anywho, let's talk to Jonah before I get too sad over here, okay? Rip. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, this was a story that was on our radar. You know, we had even, Sayward and I had even, like, exchanged links. I think she sent the first one back back when this was all happening in, in the news not even a year ago. We were like, oh, gosh, wouldn't that be a great story? And, and our first thought was, well, you know, the New Yorker is going to do this, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it's just too big. They have too many great writers, so, you know, several of them with like pretty impeccable connections to the, to the South America and Central America and Spanish speaking countries. You know, we, we almost thought like, this is too big for us. You know? mm-hmm. And then we got a pitch from William. And it was like, okay, here's somebody who's thought about it and and is on the right track. And we just kept asking about yeah, everything about the story relies on the sourcing, you know. Yeah. And and so we just kept asking, well, how are you going to get to this person? How are you going to get to this person? And if he hadn't already established contact with them, he knew someone who he had talked to someone who thought that they could get him in contact with them, you know? And so we kept asking questions and he had just like good answers to them, you know, not always perfect, but he was upfront about what he had and what he didn't and what he thought he could get and how he would try it. And eventually we thought, okay, like we, we can't ask any more questions. Like he's answered them and it's pretty satisfactory. So uh, let's get him to Columbia and see, see what comes out. And it, he his reporting on this i can't say enough about it like I, i'm in a, in awe a little bit of of how deep he was able to get and how many people he was able to talk to yeah that's that's something that you know you, i've rarely heard you say about being in awe of someone's you know repertorial chops on a given story and that's not to denigrate the past pieces but like you to the fact that you just said that about Williams uh, speaks volumes to what he was able to accomplish. So, you know, what was it about uh, the heft of reporting he was able to accomplish that you know, really made your jaw drop? I mean, he was just tireless, you know, he just, like he does not stop. 
I'm not, and I'm not sure he, he has a newborn. And so I've wondered if like, well, he's not sleeping anyway. So he's, (laughs) he's decided to be reporting as well, but man, I mean, I would get, you know, like texts from him in the middle of the night, his time, because he's, he's based in London. Um, you know, so I would get texts like just before I went to bed with a question. Um, and then I'd have a text waiting for me when I woke up, uh, with another question. And he, you know, he would, he would say, okay, I think maybe I have a line on this person. So-and-so is going to tell this person that he's calling at this hour. And he would just call and call and call and call until he finally got somebody on the phone and, and then was able to, get them to open up and, and reveal, you know, their role in the story and other people's roles. He, he was just tireless with it. Well, long after the point, there were a couple of times when I even said to him like, okay, pause on the reporting. Cause we've got to get some writing <laughs> done yeah. on the, <laughs> on the story. And, and like, we'll catch up on the reporting later. Cause he, he's just, he just doesn't quit. He gets his teeth into it and he just wants to keep going. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, I remember talking with Jackie McMullen, the great sports writer, basketball writer. And, uh, you know, a big thing with her back in the day, I guess even still to some extent today, she would always be like, you know, when you think you're done, make 10 more phone calls. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like to that point, it's like, OK, that's great. That's that's the rigor. But at some point you can you can get lost in that and you're like, yeah, eventually you do eventually have to write. Yeah, you do. You've got to be able to write a draft at some point. You've got to hit pause. And, and even, I mean, God, towards the end of it, you know, there would be small questions. And even when I would say like, look, if you don't know the answer to this, let me know because we can probably write our way around it or, you know, just tell me what you know and what you don't know. And he would still his response would be, I can get this. I don't know the answer, but I can get this. Let me, let me do it. Like give me an hour to chase it down. And he would go off and find another person and, and make another contact and find it. There were, there were very, there were only a few things that in the end we just couldn't really find out. Um, but they were really, really minor details and, and we were able to write around them in the end. Um, but yeah, he was, he was committed to finding every last thing that he could. There was something that struck me about the piece too. And I, I love when this happens organically and it does with, with William's piece here is how the, the jungle is in and of itself kind of the, this character, you know, this Uh essence. And I, I really, I really love that when you can just like feel the heat and the humidity and the, the suffocation of the canopy. Like it really, Uh I, I just love that element of it. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, I, I, um, I loved that about this story that it, that it's just, it feels so alive and it, it feels, I mean, it is a, very much a character in the story and it even like i've sort of gone on a jungle kick since then like i've just keep reading books set in the jungle i think because this piece is just like it wet my appetite for it and Mm -hmm. i'm just like let's keep going like i'm i'm in the jungle mode let's keep reading about it yeah on some roads that i've i drive through in in here in oregon you know just off to the side like some of these forests 
you know, we're, we're just talking like, yeah, evergreens. And you look in and sometimes 10 or 20 yards in, it almost goes pitch black. And we're yeah. not talking like super like jungle canopy here. And you got you get a sense that, you know, somewhere in the Amazon where maybe nobody has ever really traversed that it is just total darkness, especially, you know, in the even when it's sunny out, like during the, uh, it's under there. It's just you feel the claustro claustrophobic feeling of oh my god, like we're in a box almost. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, they, they. I mean, if if the rescuers, the searchers, you know, got too far apart, there was a risk that they would be lost from each other. You know, and we're, and we're talking about feet, not miles or anything you know it's not a quarter mile away where you get lost it could be like you know five six yards away that that you're getting lost it it's and i mean it and he goes into all this in the story it, it makes it very difficult to find uh for children who who are out there particularly if they're worried about being found um for one reason or another in that that's a, a part of the story and it, it's it's crazy i mean it's a it's a crazy story it's one of those that like i just i talk about all the time you know i feel i feel bad for like my wife and in-laws <laughs> and friends who who i see most often because they'll ask me how it's going and all of a sudden like half an hour has gone by and i'm still talking about the story about these kids <laughs> yeah well and uh, to to your point earlier about you know, thinking that the story was so big that there's no way the new yorker doesn't kind of swoop in and get this but it's like you guys kind of got the scoop on this and that's not something you don't associate scoop and the atavist together and you kind of you kind of got it <laughs> i think as as we wrapped up the story i told william how proud i was to have worked on it and and how i i do think i mean he we set out we only wanted to do this if we could write the definitive story you know we didn't want to write a a aggregation of what had been published in other outlets we we wanted to like get to primary sources and have this be the story and and he was able to pull it off and it does like it feels great you know it feels great to have actually done it and be able to get it out in the world because i don't think anybody out there has has done what we've done yeah it must have been a a, a an invigorating uh, sense of urgency that, uh, that maybe you don't always get all the time with these kind of stories with what you tend to publish. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, it didn't, there was kind of an extra fire lit under us. Um, and it also came together very quickly at the end. You know, we've, we've worked, I was just apologizing to another writer whose draft has been with me for a long time. Um, but I told him, I've just every minute that I've had to work and many minutes that I haven't really had available to work, I've been devoted to this story. You know, if, if I get a text at seven thirty at night, I'm, you know, eating the last bite of dinner and pulling out my laptop and dealing with it. It, it was, uh, it was pretty intense for me, but, but I have a pretty low RPM. I'm, <laughs> I'm a big house cat at heart. So it, it was, um, it was a lot, but it's worth it in the end to be able to pull off a, a story of this quality. 
Fantastic. Well, Jonah, this was great to get the you know your side of the table here. We're going to turn it over to William now. So as always, thanks for the time. This was great. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks to Jonah. Thank you, Jonah. William is a journalist based out of the UK. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Bloomberg News, Wired Magazine, Esquire Magazine, and more. He has little to no internet presence, so he doesn't have to deal with demoralizing mailing list unsubscribes. Here's my chat with William. One of the topics I wanted to jump off with you about was this just the idea of engendering trust as a journalist. And this story seemed it really hinges on you being able to get that kind of trust. And here you are from UK and to the Colum- uh, the jungles of Colombia, South America. So it's like, and you're doing a lot of this over the phone. So how did you manage to navigate that? Well, it began because I, I had, uh, I-, I kindly spoke to uh, Pedro Sanchez, who's the head of the special forces unit in Colombia. Um, a journalist in Colombia gave me his telephone number. And I remember I just called him one day and I just said, you know, my broken Spanish, I want to tell this narratively. I want to tell the story in great detail. Um, would you be willing to cooperate? And obviously, you know, their work deserves to be celebrated for finding the children. And, and um, he was very enthused by the idea. Um, I don't think he quite realized how much effort it takes on behalf of the sources who, who contribute to these pieces. But it all began with him. And then he gave me the number of many of the other sources in the, in, in the jungle. You know, uh, for example, uh, Nicholas, the, 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 the gentleman who actually found the children and several others. And I just reached out to them, but getting their trust was, was extremely difficult. Um, they had been reached out to several journalists before before me because I actually came onto the story quite late. It took a lot. It took a lot, a lot of back and forth, and and I I am pretty dogged in that way. Um, I think it was a case of, with in this case, story in particular, it was a case of telling them. And in fact, it's the it's the case, same with most stories. Actually, to be honest with you, I was I was working on another sensitive story before this about the uh, the Lucy Letby um, serial killer and um. Again, it's about reassuring them that you know that I am, I'm not going to create sensationalist headlines. I'm going to treat this with the respect and the and the sensitivity that it deserves, and I'm also going to give you a platform to tell your story in great detail. And you know, I, I have to sometimes repeat that to them, but but by and large, I think it I think it worked most of the time. Almost all of the reporting was done just by getting and just flying around and getting buses around and essentially trying to track them down. Really, I mean, I, as much as I tried before I arrived in Bogota or behind in Colombia anywhere. I couldn't arrange any meetings. It was just about being in Bogota. And we flew down to Villa Vicencio. Um, there was an earthquake, so we couldn't get get the bus. And then, you know, I flew down there. Tried. To, I heard that some of them were down there. Some of the some of the rescuers were down there. And you know, I heard that Fatima, the the the, the grandmother, was down there. And we met her in a bar, and we chatted to her, went out with her. And I spent a lot of time telling her that, that I want you know I want to tell her story in in the detail it deserves to to, to talk about Magdalena and to talk about you know, talk about the children and to and and to really give their side of the story because I think there's a lot of misreporting about it. And as soon as I sort of explain that to them that, that, that with this word length and with the rigor and the sensitivity that I write with, I think by reassur- I think that, that gave them that gave them the reassurance, I think, to sort of sort of sit down with me. Uh but it 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 wasn't easy. It was it was a huge amount of back and forth. I mean we spent about I think three days with Fatima before she actually ended up speaking with us. With uh, Andres, uh, Andres, the the father of the children, it was the same thing. I mean, I actually, I actually spoke to him over Zoom. I had a friend of mine go and interview, sit with him in, in a meeting room in Bogota, and I zoomed in because I'd come back by that time. But 
you know, I was going back and forth with his lawyer for about about three three weeks, if not a month, just saying this is what I want to do. He's a, he's a he's a voice that hasn't been featured in the story before. His name had cropped up in I think several like Daily Mail articles, but nobody had tracked him down. And I managed to track him down, fortunately. And again, he ha- he'd he'd almost been been missed, and there was a lot of misreporting. And I just said, this is the story that that will will be the definitive, and I want to do it in a way, you know, I, I want to give you the platform. And event, I thank God they gave me the trust. And obviously, then it grows from there. Once you have three or four of the sources, then. You can say I've spoken to him, him, and her, and it's essentially saying, you know, this train is leaving. Do you want to be part of it or not? And by that point, by, by once you get to that stage, then it's a lot easier. I had seen a, or heard an interview with a Pulitzer Prize winner uh, Corey Johnson, a reporter over here in the states. He didn't come up as like a traditional journalist. He kind of just learned, learned by doing, and a lot of what he would do is just like tr- old school door knocking. Just going face to face, you know, if emails or phone calls weren't going answered, he'd just find their address and knock on the door. Lately, of in maybe the last few years or so, certainly as the internet has really taken over, uh, and social media and digital means of communication, I think we've lost sight of how personal journalism should be and used to be. And you getting face to face with these people, I imagine, was really what. Uh, really earn that trust, and maybe you can speak yeah. to that. Getting face to face in an age where everything is so, is really faceless and almost impersonal. Yeah, it's it's necessary. I mean, it's the same thing with meeting somebody. You have to meet them in person to get a feel for what they're like. And and um, and it was the same thing here. Is that you know to meet uh, Eliezer, for example, uh, the, the the gentleman who speaks about actually finding the children. You know, who's in that group of four. He was so um, he was so cautious about meeting there. I tried to ring him several times from in London and never got through anywhere, you know. And I know that a lot of the, the sources turn their phones off or change their numbers for the reason that they're getting hassled by journalists. They didn't want to talk to journalists because I think that they I think that they didn't think that they understood them. Uh, but a lot of it, yeah. I mean, it's very important that you meet face to face. But uh, I should say that a lot of it also came from um, came from recommendations. So the reason that Eliezer finally opened his doors to me and actually sat down with me and and told me a story and sort of continued to call me afterwards was primarily because the soldiers, the military, you know, I sat down with all the military in great detail, uh, you know, Sergeant Rojas, Captain Montoya, I went to their homes and sat down with them again, listened to their story, you know, we sat down for hours and hours and hours. And because they, they that group and that second group, it came from a recommendation from them, they knew that I was doing, you know, I was, I, I was, I was treating this, I was really going to report this heavily and not misreport it, not, you know, it's going to be fact checked, it's going to be, you know, it's going to, I'm going to give them the time. Um, it came from recommendation um, in that way. So the way that a lot of the, the indigenous opened up was, yeah, as I said, that the, the military either uh, gave them a gave them a call or sent them a text or you know or actually visited them with me. So so the military were really were the they were the catalyst in all this really. But yeah, the face to face meeting is very important. I mean, it, they, I would never I would never have been able to report it from over here because they just wouldn't have answered my phone calls. It worked out in the end, but it was a you know it required um, mm-hmm. you know lots of trips that, that I didn't think were going to go anywhere. Um, and in speaking with Jonah, you know, he talked about your your doggedness in the reporting, and you know, you've even said that too. It's just kind of in your nature. And uh, mm. I wonder, like, where does that doggedness come from, and how does how do you define it in your trade and how you go about the work? Um, I don't know where it comes from. I've always been a hard worker, um, but I love it. I I I, can't, I suppose it becomes easy when you know it, when you know it can be effective because there's been so many times in the past where I've been struggling to get a source, or other journalists I know have been struggling to get a source, 
I think I'll always send that other WhatsApp. I'll always make that, other, that extra phone call when other people will give up. Because um, I, I, I quite, I really enjoy it, and it, and often, often I find it that the piece can sort of really open up. Like this story really opened up by getting Anders, Jack, uh, Anders, the father of the children, the not 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 Manuel or Noke, but the other, you know, the father of the two eldest children. That really opened up because that was the only time I got a really real sense of Magdalena, and I knew that he came in quite late, as I said before, and I just knew having spoken to Jonah too, that I needed that, needed more context around Magdalena and I couldn't work out how to get that. And I, you know, I, I put, we'd all put a, ho- a whole load of effort and time into the story. And um, so I think it just comes from that. I just, I just can't be satisfied until I get it. And, you know, once, once Andres came back to me and sort of gave me that sort of piece, it gave me the interview. As I said, I was going back and forth with his lawyer for, for, for about a month beforehand. But I, I just, I just don't, I just don't rest until I've got it really. And that's, but I also I remind myself that I'm not, um asking so much for a favor from these people i yes you are because i suppose you're making money on and you, you are in a way capitalizing on their stories but in the other way i'm also i i also like to think that i'm gonna i'm gonna give them as i said the platform to tell their story in a way that is that is that is properly done um and that was definitely a, a, a an, an example with um with andres because he you know he felt the journalist had overlooked him as the father of the children he felt like it you know he, he the, the journalist who had approached him hadn't been sensitive to his story hadn't given hadn't listened to him properly and I know that um I reminded myself that there are often other people in the story that that, that deserve a voice and that was the case with Andres and he's the best example of it really sometimes I think to myself that you know should I send another message should I give up on the source but I always say you know one more I'll try once more once more and often that that final time is is the time where it really unlocks really sometimes too in uh making those extra calls to get that extra detail as important as that is sometimes you can get lost in it and you know forget that you have to eventually start to write the thing so at what point do you feel like you're comfortable turning that faucet off and be like you know what uh william i got you got to start writing buddy (laughs) this one was a bit simple because i kind of had a had a very obvious lead for it because um you know the crash is so dramatic and there was documentation uh, by the Civil Aviation Authority in Colombia that you could sort of reconstruct that in great detail. So I could begin I could begin writing quite clear, right, quickly on this one. I mean, there was another option for the lead, which was actually the the helicopter, um, you know, the actual rescue when they were actually rescuing the um, the children. Because uh, I had the pilot of the helicopter who spoke to me, uh, Julian Navoa, mm-hmm. uh, who was brilliant. He gave he went into such great detail. He was very charismatic too. I actually begin writing, writing almost because I can I can imagine what the lead is going to be. So I, so often I don't I don't wait I don't wait to uh, write until I've got until I've done all the interviews. They're 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 going on at the same time. I often find that once you've actually written the story and you've fleshed out the information that you have, I find that then you can actually really spot blanks. So you can actually, you can spot where the gaps are in this story, the way you really feel as if you could that would really benefit from the reporting. So you can actually be very targeted with the actual sources that you're going to chase down. For example, I knew that I needed Andres for this. I knew that uh, having somebody, uh, one of the indigenous uh, rescuers, who could actually describe to me the moment of finding the children, one of the four, would be really important. So I so I asked, uh, you know, yeah, you can continue to report, but I think that I report, I, I begin writing quite quickly and that, that, can, that can give you the direction that knowing exactly where the holes are that can really benefit from an extra paragraph. And a moment ago you said something, and, and Jonah brought this up too, that you were after a very definitive account of what happened here in this rescue and uh, mm. that can be that can be a lot of pressure to to shoulder be like oh shit you know you got to you know make sure no stern, stone is left unturned yeah. and uh, you know and yeah. you get one crack at it to be definitive yeah. and so how did you kind of rise up to that moment 
I, I did feel pressure, to be honest with you. I did. Um, you know, it's a really funny feeling when you sort of go on a reporting trip because you sort of fly into this country and you're just hoping that these sources are going to appear or are going to be around. And it's not like you can sign an agreement with them, be here on this date. With this one, I felt really, really pressured because it was a story that had been quite widely covered. So I had to really, really work out what I was going to tell the readers that hadn't already been reported before. You know, there, there were, there were, there, you know, it had been covered by the New York Times here. And then, you know, every, loads of newspapers have sent, sent correspondents down there to report on it. And I had to sort of work out where, what, what else I could say. See, when I, the first day I arrived, I sort of said, you know, I, I landed at seven in the morning. And I remember I said, Pedro Sanchez, I'm going to come and visit you right away. And, you know, that, that would be, that would give me some sort of content, sort of begin writing. And, um, and I remember, I remember I got there, I landed at Bogota Airport. And I remember I texted him like, like midday and, we had a meeting scheduled for three in the afternoon. I remember he cancels and um and I remember sitting there and then I remember that I was supposed to go and visit Nicholas down in Puerto Leguisimo and then he cancelled and I was there like in my friend's apartment in Bogota and I was like, Oh my god, this is this is this is this is gonna fall apart. One of them's you know, this one of them's gonna I was just panicking and um once you once you get the first interviews and you start to get every single person mentions another name, another person you must talk to, and um and then it just it just grew from there really, and this one this one a lot of it grew off um off Pedro Sanchez as I said, um and the military we had all the military first because they were all they were all quite easy to track down. Pedro sort of flew in some of the military, you know, he flew in from he flew in like uh, Montoya and Montiel and all these people to specifically to speak to me for the story. So I sort of had the span of the article quite quickly because they they were great talkers and they sort of um were so helpful in, 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 in detailing it for me and, and, they, and they remembered it extremely well but then that that had a, that left me in a, in, a, in a strange territory because I felt like I had all the military stuff really really down to a T in terms of you know amazing detail amazing quotes and, and and amazing perspectives but it also left a huge you know a huge part of the story out which was the indigenous side and that took a lot longer and there was definitely a big panic because it, it took me a lot it took me a, it, it was not easy tracking tracking any of them down sort of sit down with me in any sort of detail but yeah there were you know there was there was several panic stations and um and you said that you know you you write fairly early in the reporting process and then you're able yeah. to target when you see the potholes in the road and everything mm-hmm. uh, you know when you're on when you were in Colombia, would you uh you know what would a day look like for you when you would go out reporting would you come back to a hotel and and uh or your, or your friend's house and, and and write a bit or transcribe like how, how would that shape out no i I didn't write when I was over there. It, it, reporting for me is because I was I was over there I think for two weeks and um and it becomes such a uh, incredibly exhausting process. It's like I think I was listening to a podcast with Sam Anderson actually for New York Times. Uh, I think it was on the I, I can't remember which podcast it was. Now he spoke about you know you entering these worlds and you sort of it's like your ears and your your senses become highly sensitive for that period and it is like that. You become highly sensitive uh, during these interviews, sort of make sure you get the information that you want because you don't have t- much time with any any, any of them. I mean, you have you have enough time, but obviously, you know, it's not like you can ring them up very easily afterwards, because especially the military, you know, they were they were they could be in the field, but no, they and the, and the indigenous could be in the jungle. So I knew I had to get as much as I could from those those meetings. Uh, got names, got numbers, and and if I couldn't track them down, then I sort of flew to flew to the city where I thought they would be. Um, and it was just a lot of it was a lot of it was quite speculative. Um, as I said before, it became a little bit tricky because there was an earthquake when I was over there, so all the all the roads were shut off. Mm. So we had to end up flying a lot of the time, which made it more difficult. But yeah, it was just it was it was honestly just flying. I mean, we we as I said we had meetings with the military because they were very responsive, but the indigenous it was just about flying uh, flying to, to 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 the towns where they they might be and sort of asking people, you know, do you know anyone who was involved in the in the um in 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 the 
in the, in the rescue. And fortunately, we got people who pointed in the right direction. Then we then we sort of literally ran into hotels and bars where they were and 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 asked them to speak with us. Really, there's this wonderful moment where you go, okay, like I think I have enough to actually write this now. And obviously, after that, then you fill in the gap, you fill in the blacks, you blanks. Quite you know, quite adrenaline fueled, very little sleep. Uh, going from city to city, trying to get these people to trying to tra- track them down. Really, ultimately. Mm. And when you feel like you have enough to write, how do you? Uh, are you much of an outliner? How do you go about organizing what you've got? Um, yeah, I would like. I really wish I could say I was more organized, but I sort of. <laughs> um, this one was a bit more difficult because all the interviews were conducted in the Spanish, and I sent it to a to a to a, to a friend of mine who. Um, translated and transcribed it to English. So I didn't really understand all of what was going on in the interviews. I, I understood enough Spanish to sort of understand the, the, the outline of it, but it really came together when I actually reviewed those transcripts. That's when I sort of really began to piece it together. But yeah, no, I, I didn't organize my files in, a, in great detail at all, to be honest with you. I sort of just, um, I sort of just, just uh, filed the audio, went on to the next one, filed, you know, and then sent out the transcripts. Unfortunately, when I landed back in London, all the transcripts would come back. And that's when the story came together, really came together in my head. A part of the story that I particularly loved was how the jungle feels like a character unto itself. Yeah. And you get a sense of how claustrophobic it is underneath the canopy of uh, you know, a yeah. tropical rainforest like the Amazon in Colombia. Uh, so I don't know, just maybe like kind of take us there and how you were able to really personify and characterize uh, the ecology of where you were. It was really from the accounts. It was like there was there were bits that didn't make it in the story. There was a there was the 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 real sense. Like the first time I really got a sense of how difficult it was was firstly because the military were too scared to go in. I know that the special forces went in, but generally speaking, the the the, the you know the the Colombian military would have gone in and found that plane, but they were just too scared, or not maybe not too scared, but they they considered it too dangerous. Let's say. So that gave me that that, that was crazy to me that that was that 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 was how dangerous it was. Yeah, because you there during one of the you know some of the people in the search parties. I mean, they walked upwards of like a thousand miles of you know yeah. zigging and zagging through to try to find these kids, and it's yeah. you could go barely a yard in front of you and be just shrouded in darkness, and you get a yeah. sense of how dangerous it is in there, and not to mention the predators that are lurking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, the yeah, I mean. One of the great unknowns is they didn't know if there was if there was you know um, if there was uh, paramilitary groups or or you know um, essentially armed armed men in the jungle. That was obviously the big question at the beginning. But yeah, I mean, from what I understand is that if you you know if you if you went within if you if you drifted off six feet, especially after after dusk, then you would be lost. And that's what happened to Wilson essentially, isn't it? We believe is that we just don't know where he went. Um, I mean, I think it was. I think it was. Yeah, uh, it is. It's, it, that's why the that's why these special forces walk so close. You know, they they walked in single file um, within a few feet of each other. And Wilson um, is a dog. It, 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 one yeah. of the search dogs yeah. in the story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should say that. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it was incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult area to, to 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 form a search operation. I mean, you get you get a sense of how thick it was, given that that they flew uh, the, the 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 air force and the um and the avian line flew planes over the uh, over the jungle and they couldn't spot anything. I mean. The foliage is incredibly thick, uh, incredibly dense, and that's that's what makes it so hard to sort of sort of search, um, to sort of lead a successful search operation. Yeah, and I and with Atavis stories too. So much of what uh, they publish 
is very narratively propulsed, you know, beginning, middle, end, and uh, telling a story in that sense. So, you know, when did you, you know, when you're formulating the story beats in your head and the structure in your head, you know, how did you envision, you know, this being uh, the sort of the engine behind this? How did you, how did you, uh, you know, draw that up to, you know, make keep us scrolling, keep us reading? In terms of, the, well, yeah, this this story was quite different because there's actually so many um, key moments in it. Like, yeah, you know, they're, they're, like the crash in itself is 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 fascinating. Um, finding the finding of the bottle, um, you know, by Wilma Miranda. Then you then you've obviously got, you know, the the, the indigenous uh, Edwin Packy and the group of men uh, with Renoke finds the um, finds the plane. You know, you've got these these amazing moments of where, where even if you drift off, you suddenly got this amazing moment of quite gripping moments of, of uh, during the search obviously then you've got the the the, the ayahuasca moment at towards the end um you know so i didn't there, there were there were quite clear actually actually poles in the story that you could that you could that you could picture there was a the only difficult bit was the actually which which jonah did a great job of actually um solving was the um was the the bit at the beginning because actually for the first 15 days they so they found the plane on the 15th of may if, I, if my memory serves me well um and for the first 15 days they didn't really find anything i remember that arrows three group the um the uh the, the third um special forces group they found a um they found a, a um a, an abandoned fart camp they believed but that, nothing really happened during the first 15 days but for the rest of the story you had you know you had almost you had almost too many moments um happening because you, you know you sort of I sort of also wanted to, to to add some texture into you know the, the background of the you know the the, the socio political situation in Colombia. I also wanted to talk about you know the the indigenous beliefs. There are there are there are many other there are many subjects areas I wanted to explore, but at the same time there were there were there were loads of um loads of interesting moments you know that that I wanted to wanted to talk I want to sort of um talk about you know talk describe and thankfully with with the sources that I had you know the the chronologies the, what I mean to say is the chronology is. It, 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 I think it kind of lends, lends it. You know, it's quite, it's quite a clear chronology in it all. I don't think you really need to tell it in a, in a really, in a different way. I think you, you, you I, I kind of wanted to, wanted to, wanted to keep it chronological. Um, and I know that's something that Jonah, I suggested too, because uh, there's so many names in the story um, that I think if you, if you ventured off from telling it chronologically, it would have become probably a bit, a little bit too difficult to follow. Yeah, the the one part, and uh, I had. Ex- emailed you about this too just about the really cool structural decision of you know putting in the the children's point of view which comes late in the story and that kind of breaks chronology a little bit and there are any number of ways that could have been handled you know that could have been kind of braided in you know as you know they're trying to survive and then the search party around them and you know you find that they're like very close to each other at one point and you know, you don't really find that out until the end. And I always put a little spoiler alert at the top of the show here so we can, yeah. you know, talk about uh, that and how close those search parties were actually to these kids and how close they actually were to the crash site itself. Um, but yeah. you, you find that out at the end versus it being kind of sprinkled out throughout. So I just wanted to get a sense of, uh, you know, that this, the decision making uh, of that. The boring reason is that we had almost all of it written before we had the children's account. Mm-hmm. So, um and and as Jonah and I discussed, is that you know it's a we we didn't really want to have to mess with the structure of the piece um, again because we kind of had it had it pretty much laid out mm-hmm. 
the, the, the other reason for that is that the, the children's account, we didn't really know how much of the children's account we'd really get um, because they are under governmental protection and um, they, they weren't available for interviews. Um, or So we didn't really know how much information we would get, be able to get. So I didn't want it to feel thin when you sort of gave their account if you braided it in through the piece. I think in hindsight, you probably could have braided it through, but um, we didn't know how much information we'd have sort of braid through. So at that so at that moment, it sort of felt right to sort of leave, leave it towards the end, which I think works really well anyway, actually, in, in hindsight. Um, yeah. Well, it's What's interesting about hearing you say that is that, you know, it was just the, the circumstances of when you got the information and where you were in the writing already that kind of dictated where that went. Yeah. So it wasn't so much a a creative choice at the very start of the thing. Like, this is where it kind of makes sense. It's like, well, this is the only place you can go right now. And, you know, in the end, yeah. not knowing the backstory of it, it, like it works brilliantly. So it's, it kind of gives you an idea of all the different directions and tributaries you can go down and it, and it's still very effective and still works and it's still powerful. Yeah. I, I like, I like it when you get to the piece. I like it when you read it because I think that the, the, the reader, it cuts, you know, these, these pieces are long. I think this one's 11,000 words and it, and there's definitely that tension in the piece where you get where you're dying to dying to know the kids' account at that stage, and I think that it comes at the right time. And something I wanted to pick your brain about also, and this is kind of in our email dialogue, given that you had been, uh, you know, in rewrites and the the story you had written, uh, you've been with it so long that you just you lose sight of how fresh it is, and you just you, you kind of glaze over. You're like, I don't even know if this is good anymore. <laughs> and um, yeah. and uh, I can attest that it that it is brilliant. But you know, when you when you've gotten to the point where you've read it so many times, you almost can s- recite it by memory. And yeah. you yeah, yeah. like, how do you you know rewrite in there, knowing that it's like, okay, am I making this better? Is this still even good anymore? Like, you know, how do you? Uh, uh, what's the approach like for you? Um, it's it's really it's really hard to know, and you never really know until they land. To be honest with you, um, yeah. Uh, I I have a few people I send it to, sort of ask, you know, sort of just sort of see whether they can follow it, see whether, as I said, I have a tendency to over-report, which is which is I suppose a blessing and a curse in a way, because it does end, does throw up all these fantastic characters that feature in the story, but obviously, obviously some of them simply don't add anything. You know, for example, there was there was there were three or four characters that spring to mind that I had in the draft up until like last week, I think, before we closed it. Um, that featured, but they just didn't add anything to the story. Um, you know, I had like a guy called Jair, who was the, the another cousin of of Fermo Mendoza. There was a guy called Andrew Londonio, who I told you about before, who was involved in the search in, in very minor ways, but it kind of overcomplicated the narrative. But it kind of yeah, I, I depend heavily on my editor Jonas. Or, you know, I trusted trust him implicitly to sort of to sort of know uh, which bits to cut out and which bits weren't didn't really add anything to the story. But as I said, I I, I also um. I also uh, send it to a few really trusted editor friends of mine who sort of will read it through and say, you know, this this bit, this section is a bit, whatever. You know, this doesn't really add anything. Uh, but it it really it really does depend on my editor in that way, um, and that sort of relationship is really really important. There's obviously, I suppose, part of me that also wants to give them a voice. You know, it's it's kind of, I imagine it's quite frustrating for the for the for the source when they sit down and tell you their story for an hour and then they don't make then their voice isn't even in the story at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but. Um, so there's something inside of me that always wants to mention that name. Part of, you know, I suppose, also another part of it, I suppose, is sometimes you want to you want to sort of, there's, there's obviously something egotistical in it, you know, sort of showing I got this guy who did this, but did they really add anything to the story? Um, so it really, uh, it, yeah, now it's your question, it really depends on the editor. Um, and I sort of have to trust them to sort of know what's important and what's not. 
Well, as we're uh, winding down here, uh, as you know, long-time listeners, that I ask guests for a recommendation of some kind, and some some people read the confirmation notes, which prompt them on that, and and William was in a bit of a a brain fog uh, from having uh, uh, been a bit overworked, and he's also got a relatively very young baby in the house, and... uh, the recommendation thing caught him really flat-footed, and uh, he's like, can I get back to you? And I said, sure, you can get back to me. And then he, he sent me an email, and he said, for my recommendation, please say Rummy, the card game, best played with four people. My girlfriend and I were staying with my mom and sister over Christmas because we, had a, uh, we have a newborn and wanted an extra pair of hands, and it really is a great way to spend quality time together over a glass of wine. Great recommendation. I love that stuff. Some people say, like, I gotta do a book. Gotta do a book. And in this case, it's like, no. Rummy is pretty amazing. All right. We did it. We got here. What's that, episode 399? Woof. Thanks to Jonah and William. I have nothing left to give so no parting shot. You could always follow along the show at uh, Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Threads and Instagram. And yeah, subscribe to the podcast if you don't. And um, no parting shot. Uh, maybe next week. We got episode four hundred. What? Are you kidding me? There might be a song and dance number. Uh, probably not. But, but don't. But don't count it out. Uh, you know, with I might do a Dick in a Box. Song and dance number with this, with this uh, this shave that happened today. If you can't do the interview, see ya. <laughs> <laughs>